There is so much we could explore with regard to white evangelicalism, sexual hang-ups, but today I'm going to explore purity culture taking true love weights virginity pledges of the 90s and early aughts as the case study. In his book, The History of Sexuality, Foucault describes four transformations of power in Victorian sexuality. The first, there was the framing of women's symptom as hysteria, something that was bodily and not culturally created. Secondly, there was the controlling of the sexuality of children. And third, there was the classification of quote-unquote normal sexual behaviors, which meant they were also labeling anything else as an alternative sexuality or as a perversion, especially after Carl Westfall first developed the idea of different sexual orientations as late as 1870. By the way, it wasn't until 1946 that the Revised Standard Version became the first English Bible to even use the word homosexual at all. And finally, there was the disciplining of populations into acceptable expressions of sexuality. Foucault was talking about the Victorian period, but don't each of these transformations map pretty well onto evangelical purity culture? Purity culture is a term for the broadly anti-sex, highly patriarchal, and heteropatriarchal culture associated with conservative Christianity. A few of its teachings are quite old, but what's new are the particular rituals or the given reasons and the locations of authority. For example, no longer must a woman remain a virgin in order to ensure her children were indeed sired by the husband raising them. She must now remain a virgin because God says so, or not so as not to embarrass her father. The contemporary version takes these old ideas but reinvents the reasons. It drops the concern with property or heirs and shifts focus to do this because God says so. And it's not just the teachings, but also the technologies. So here's a weird example. The internet was practically built for pornography, and by the early aughts, the evangelicals were catching up with a response of their own. So there were these companies like Covenant Eyes and X3 Watch, which were writing so-called accountability software. Since 2002, x3watch.com has advertised itself as a three-step anti-pornography platform. First, one signs up with an accountability partner. Then the partner receives an email containing all of your browsing activity across all your devices. And finally, there's a conversation of, oh, you sinned again. The site's banner actually advertises, live a porn-free life with the power of internet accountability. It advertises its success with a statistic that it... I, not sure where it comes from, but it says 87% of our users feel confident about quitting porn after just one month. Users can sign up for an individual plans or for 50% more, they can sign up their whole family together. Now, what's going on here? First, obviously, pornography is standing in for masturbation. But if groups are downloading the software, they are all enjoying a ritual of failure and repression and then failure again. Everyone downloading this software is still masturbating, just as they all fail to live up to their abstinence ideals. But the fantasy still seems to work. It still produces some sort of group behavior, some sort of ritual. In other words, they are enjoying shame as a substitute for sexual satisfaction. A very influential book captures an early phase of these evangelical purity teachings. Almost a conservative answer to Alex Comfort's book, The Joy of Sex, in 1976, Tim and Beverly LaHaye's bestseller, The Act of Marriage, 
brought a message of sexual license within the boundaries of matrimony. Early in the book, LaHaye described his first what he calls sex counseling experience, in which a man arrived despondent over a secret conflict. Eventually, the man blurted out to LaHaye, how long do you think I should go along with married celibacy? Ah, so that's the problem. The man's wife believed that sex was only for procreation, LaHaye complained, and his message was clear. The woman was at fault and had a damaged view of sexuality. In LaHaye's next story in the book, another woman described her husband's affair after 20 years and four children together. LaHaye knew how to blame again, writing, quote, while his decision to leave his family cannot be condoned in a Christian, I am confident, knowing the youthful character of the man and his commitment to Christ, that it would not have happened if his wife had not been afflicted with an unbiblical mental attitude toward married lovemaking, end of quote. The most troubling and revealing thing about this book's message and the culture to which it speaks is its concept of consent. It's something that either doesn't exist or is permanently bestowed in the marriage context. So if her God-given role is to submit or to give in to male desire, then consent is essentially something that cannot be meaningfully revoked after the wedding vows are exchanged. There is no spectrum for nuance in this perspective. Women are submissive or rebellious. Men are good guys or bad guys. There's no ambiguity. It's not a book asking questions. So how does sexuality become such a threat to a faith or to a culture? Several fantasies extend to justify sex-negative thinking. Haven't we heard them all? The Bible condemns sex outside of marriage. Marriage only exists between uh, two opposite sex partners. Sex outside of marriage does not express love and trains for divorce. Sexuality is a choice. Surely repression doesn't return to something else. The adolescent isn't or shouldn't be sexual. Women are not sexually driven like men. Men deserve to have opinions on what women should or should not do with their bodies. The list goes on. Now, these fantasies support repression of the self and oppression of the other. And I'm tempted to truncate my claim here is this. If you want to understand why parents torture their children with uh, LGBT conversion therapy, then it actually helps somewhat to understand how college students join ministries celebrating intense self-repression, demanding abstinence not only from sex but even from masturbation. How do these levels of repressive uh, self-repression actually end up expressing aggression towards people you ostensibly love? There's a specific species of narcissism here involved, not to mention the hypocrisies which serve to relieve repression and induce shame as a control mechanism. So the abstinence pledge is a shame control mechanism. I'm reminded of a moment some years ago on the rhetoric of shame control mechanisms. I was spending time with a group of friends on the coast of England And one of my friends must have joked about Christian abstinence teaching because the conversation spirals into various ways we'd heard sex outside of marriage described in our youth in evangelical churches. And one of us recalled that her ministers used to say that sex with multiple partners was like letting multiple people take bites out of a bar of chocolate, and it tarnished the experience for everyone else and spread germs. And I recall thinking this was the sort of the crude difference between English culture and my much more crass American culture. We had no elegant chocolate metaphor. For Americans, it was the common metaphor was a cup passed around for the room for everyone to spit in. 
Even the nature of the crude gender-specific example using a bodily fluid was designed to shame girls, not boys, as the focal point of abstinence. So in American culture in the 90s, we were overrun with abstinence campaigns. True Love Waits was the most well-known. True Love Waits. It was organized by the Southern Baptist Convention in 1993 and promoted through concerts and literature and bands, various rallies targeting adolescents. Participants often wore purity rings, a symbol of pre-betrothal to a future spouse. Nashville youth minister Richard Ross claimed that the idea for True Love Waits dawned on him when two teenage girls confided, we are the only virgins left in our school. The organization's pledge that students would take read like this. Believing that true love waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, my friends, my future mate, and my future children to a lifetime of purity, including sexual abstinence from this day until the day I enter a biblical marriage relationship. More than 2 million adolescents took this pledge in the first couple of years. 2 million. Not surprisingly, the promise didn't work insofar as the goal was stopping extramarital sex, but it had massive effects on emotional health and maturation. The group uses the language of virginity as well as uh, what it called secondary virginity, the latter bestowing a sense of forgiveness within the rubric of shame still. So True Love Waits bolstered repressive sexual mores with marketing glamour. Popular Christian musicians were recruited to spread the word, and for one example of the spectacle— In a 1996 rally filling Atlanta's Georgia Dome, uh, it ended with 350,000 pledge cards strung up over the crowd. The message was clear. Chastity is good, and you're not alone. Several groups with similar message proliferated around the same time as part of what historian Elizabeth Abbott called a youth chastity movement of what she called power versions. Here's an excerpt from uh, the historian Elizabeth Abbott's work on this. Uh, Quote, celibacy is at the heart of true love waits, a positive, confident, and reassuring celibacy. It validates and shores up the tough people who remain chaste, but it also embraces legions of remorseful non-virgins that it designates as secondary virgins. Students who have failed sexually can be invited to seek God's forgiveness and make a true love waits Uh, pledge from this day forward. Ergo, instant redemption, and even though the true love waits cannot repair broken hymens, it does comfort the contrite and pardon the penitent. End of quote. Even the movement's t-shirts and purity rings were marked with slogans marketing celibacy as a hot new trend. Example of these slogans range from simple regret such as, I miss my virginity, to the uh, ridiculous, such as, stop your urgent, be a a virgin. (laughs) The slogans all worked through a combination of pride and shame. A 2013 study showed that 12% of American females and 7% of American male respondents under the age of 25 had taken an abstinence pledge. That is just a shocking number of students for something that appears so small. Now, numerous studies indicated relationships between such pledges and riskier sexual behavior, including but not limited to lack of protection against disease and pregnancy. 
Abstinence pledgers were slightly less likely to have sexual intercourse soon, but they were even more likely to engage in oral sex. So in one study analyzing 12,000 adolescents, 88% of pledgers and 99% of non-pledgers eventually had sex outside of marriage. Now, what a study obviously can't measure so easily is the overwhelming sense of shame involved. Shame was part of the illicit fantasy. Purity culture saw premarital sex as a type of cheating on one's future husband or wife. This is why the purity ring exists, to symbolize a pre-betrothal period. One book published on, in this period captured uh, the, the zeitgeist of the moment and became enormously influential by recasting dating as a type of courtship. It evoked older heteropatriarchal ideals of control and parental consent. Parental consent, not the consent of the partners involved. So this is the story of this book. The book was written by a character named Joshua Harris at the age of 21. He was only 21 when he published I Kiss Dating Goodbye in 1997. The book sold 1.2 million copies to date and served as a primer for teenage courtship rather than dating. It opens with a wedding scene between characters named David and Anna. And just as the vows were read, a woman in the congregation stands to take David's hand. More women followed until six stood alongside him. And then the groom turns to his bride and confesses these were girls from his past. He says to her, I've given a part of my heart to each of them. Everything that's left is yours. Now, this scene turns out to be a dream described in a letter. And the person writing the letter told Harris of her shame, imagining the number of men who could line up next to her at her altar. So don't we have a type of Freudian dream here? Perhaps her indoctrination into this culture told her that she must torment herself and generate shame, or perhaps she secretly hopes that her future husband would sin in equal proportion, such that the transgressions might be zeroed out by comparison. Who knows? But clearly angst drew from the messages and suggested that her value had dropped. Harris's allegory here in this book uh, aimed to instill anxiety over a wedding day clouded with affairs from your teenage years, right? So that you can never enjoy. You always have to think about the shame that is waiting you in the future if you enjoy today. Harris's own interpretation of this dream underscores how one is never backed far enough away from the ambiguous line of transgression. The heart is inclined to evil all the time, right? So giving away your heart, as he puts it, is clearly a euphemism for sex, but the phrase extends to almost any transgression. In fact, Harris followed Anna's story by describing an adolescent relationship in which he did not have sex and yet felt that he was in a dangerous direction, which was dishonoring to God. He wrote that, quote, we were violating each other's purity and our spiritual lives were stagnant as a result. He's very ambiguous about it, but he's clear that he's not talking about sex, and yet there is this overwhelming sense of shame. And this is part of the fantasy here. The free will actor must toil and root out her own sexuality. At least, this is the fantasy. But since the numbers show it to all be a fiction, what role does this fantasy play if nobody lives up to it? So between a quarter and a third of Americans believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong in some or all instances, a view which has dropped dramatically since the sexual revolution, even if our actual behavior hasn't changed that much. 
fewer than half of Americans see pornography as morally acceptable, though viewing habits suggest otherwise, right? We understand that there's a difference between what people articulate and the behavior that they do, right? So what is this difference? There's a clear disconnect between the ideal and the reality, but accusations of hypocrisy aren't really useful to us. What's interesting is that certain fantasies that nobody actually lives up to nevertheless persist. A decade after True Love Waits, the National Institutes of Health published an unrelated survey of premarital sex trends from the five prior decades. So the results starkly contradicted the myth of waiting for marriage. 95% of respondents had had extramarital sex by age 44. The numbers had actually changed somewhat, but not all that much between generations, even if the uh, verbal acceptance of sex outside of marriage had changed quite a bit. The behavior hadn't changed much over generations, and the rising age of a first marriage accounted for much of the change that did exist. The survey matched many other findings in the mid-80s for those who had had sex before marriage. But the uh, National Institutes of Health study went above and beyond the normal phrasing to inquire about having extramarital sex up to age 44. So almost all surveys on this subject ask whether people waited uh, until marriage to have sex. But that only tells you so much. In reality, even the vast majority of people who wait until their first marriage to have sex will still eventually have sex outside of marriage at some point. So in this study, 70% of women and 65% of men had had sex by age 19, and the minority who initially abstained until marriage would usually change their minds later. So 97% of people in the study who had ever had sex by age 44 had done so outside of marriage. And additionally, just to make the results a little more stark, the study only defined sex as either having had vaginal intercourse before marrying uh, or having had intercourse and never having married, right? So the numbers would actually be higher if non-heterosexual sex or a larger range of sexual behaviors were measured. All right, so so 95 to 97%, but that number is dramatically lower than if it was using a more inclusive term, a, a more inclusive idea of what sexuality is. So this is an interesting survey to conclude with. This is the lesson of purity culture. It's about shame and control, but it's repeated for the next generation by parents who also did not live up to the idea, perhaps were damaged by the idea, and nevertheless persist in repeating those ideals for their adolescent children. In short, the lesson is that virtually nobody lives up to the purity ideal, but it nevertheless persists as a type of bad fantasy.